Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Doc Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Vertigo from 1958 with my wonderful guests, Ashley Blanchett and Alan Rickert. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and this week I have two special guests, Ashley Blanchett and Alan Rickert. They are joining me to talk about the film Vertigo from 1958. Alan and Ash, what did you think? Woo! Yeah. Yeah, that sums it up. (laughs) So I want to mention that we chose this movie. I always talk about, like, why did I choose this film? This one I actually chose because one of our uh, monthly subscribers requested it. It's actually been a top request from everybody, but since our subscriber requested it like a year ago (laughs) when we did Rear Window, I said, sorry, we have to wait a little while. We can't do Hitchcock's back to back. Um, But yeah, Rahul recommended this or Rahul requested this. So we're doing this one for Rahul. Hi, Rahul. Good request, Rahul. So yes, we're finally here doing Vertigo. I got to confess that I was a little concerned about doing this film because I'm not in the past. I have not completely loved this film. So mm. we can break it wow. down. I know. I know. People, please calm down at home. Don't send me hate for this. Just chill. I saw it at a different point in my life because I was just starting college. And this was kind of the first movie that kind of blew my mind with the camera techniques and stuff. So It was kind of like a repeat of when I watched Sunset Boulevard again as an adult and was taking notes and was like, oh, this is brilliant. This is incredibly good. I see what all the people like now. I think it's the best Hitchcock for sure. I mean, it's one of the best movies ever made. And even if it's like not the best movie for like, let's say plot or story, I feel like this, this, is, this movie is incredible for just the filmmaking aspect and like, you know, what can this director do and what can the, you know, the people that are making a film can do. You've got to put it up there as one of the best ever made. I'm going to get into the plot synopsis and then we're going to like break down this movie. Um, Basically there's this guy who has two names. (laughs) His name is John Scotty Ferguson and he's a cop. And one night when he's copping, he's chasing a robber and uh, the robber's jumping from building to building. And while he's jumping, uh, J- James Stewart is the person that plays this character. Uh, James Stewart jumps and barely makes it. He catches onto a wall and we get like a rear window callback uh, when he's dangling in rear window. We get like the same kind of shot and you're like, ah, that's rear window. How fun. Um, but it's not. <laughs> 
because this is when he discovers he has acrophobia, which is a fear of heights. And because of his fear of heights, another police officer who tries to help him falls off the building and dies. And it's tragic. And the the whoever it was, the robber or whoever they were chasing gets away. So now James Stewart's character has this problem with acrophobia. He gets vertigo, which is like a dizziness every time he, he does anything that involves heights and he has to leave the police force. He decides to retire. He's got an awesome best friend named Midge who is totally in love with him and they should be together, but they can't be together because she wears glasses. So she's unattractive. Um, it should also be noted they went to, they, it said they went to college together despite the fact oh. she's at least 20 years younger, it seems. Uh, I looked it up. He is 50 and she is 36. And yet they went to college together. And I was like, no, no, no. I buy it. It's Jimmy Stewart. Come on, guys. Midge kind of reminds me of um, In Rear Window to me. She's like if Grace Kelly and Thelma Ritter had a baby is her character. Mm. I think uh, that, those were the vibes I got from her. Pretty accurate. So she's my favorite character and I love her. Yay, Midge. Um, so he ends up getting this case from someone he went to school with a long time ago named Gavin Elster. That's hard to say. Gavin Elster. And it's also forgettable. Alan and I were talking a little before about like, what's that guy's name again? What? It's so bland. Gavin Elster. And then uh, this guy is like, look, I'm concerned about my wife. She's been acting a little unusual. She seems like she might be possessed by a ghost. I don't know. You tell me what you think. Or not a ghost, like a person from the past, whatever. So James Stewart starts following her and he sees that, yeah, she is displaying some unusual behavior. She seems to forget uh, where she is sometimes and think she's somewhere else. And it's possible that, uh, what's the name? Car Carlotta Valdez? That's it. That's it. That's the one. She's a ghost. She might be a ghost. She might have possessed this person. We just don't know. But we learned that this ghost person, Carlotta, died when she was 26 and that his wife is supposedly 26. Also, I think Kim Novak was like 25. Just saying. So mm. they're aging her up real hard in this. That whole year. <laughs> also, she's with a 50-year-old. Again, it's a thing. So, um... He's timeless. He's so lucky that he's so damn likable, you know? He, did, he went to school with her in college. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they also they went met. to college together before they met. Um, no viewers at home, they didn't. Alan was, Alan was joking with I'm you, sorry, so no yeah. emails to me. Thank you. Um, so, okay. So, yeah, he's like, okay, I see how this could be a thing, or at least she thinks it's a thing, and I'm concerned about her. And there's one point when she tries to commit suicide. She jumps in the bay and has apparently no recollection of it, and that's when they connect. And that's kind of when he falls in love with her. He, he falls in love with Kim Novak, who is playing this woman, Madeline Elster. He becomes a little bit obsessed with her. And they end up kind of confessing their love for each other. They have not spent much time together, but they deeply love each other because that's how you fell in love in the 1950s. And um, she's been describing this dream she's been having of like, I picture my open grave and I see this bell tower. And he's like, I know that place. You've been to that place. Let me show you and we can overcome this fear together. And also throughout, he's been kind of trying to overcome his fear of vertigo as well. So they go to this place. Um, there's a bell tower. And she like kisses him goodbye and then inexplicably like runs into the building and runs up the steps. And he's trying to follow her, but because of his fear of heights and the vertigo that comes with the fear of heights, he can't catch her. He just can't reach her. Oh, also, there are going to be major spoilers. I should have said this earlier. I say it in the opening thing, but if you don't want this movie spoiled, like stop right now. I'm going to tell you what goes down. He sees her kill herself 
And he feels completely devastated because he loved her and she's gone. And he keeps doing this. People keep dying in his care and he's a policeman. Like, dang. Great point. The repetition of people keep dying in his care in the same way. It's like, because of his fear, people are dying. Because this is the second time someone has died because of this fear. He can't escape his past. So he goes to the... You know, this court, they rule that the husband is, you know, not culpable. Jimmy Stewart's not culpable. Everyone goes free. Let's move on with our lives. Yeah, I was very mean to Jimmy Stewart for some reason, though. Anyway, So mean. I know. Impartial much? Like, aren't you a judge? What's wrong with you? Yeah, that was intense. Not our Jimmy Stewart. Also, like, blaming him for something he can't control. Like, he was acting like, it's very suspicious that this has happened twice. And I'm like, I, I think it tracks. I think if that's been an issue before, it might be an issue again. I don't know. Call me crazy. He's devastated. And he spends like a year in kind of a sanitarium trying to heal himself. We never see Midge again after the sanitarium scene, which is a bummer for everyone involved. Um, <laughs> so he's he gets out of the sanitarium and he keeps thinking he sees Madeline everywhere. And... Uh, he keeps going back to the old places that he used to kind of watch her. And again, he'll see her in each of these places, but it's not really her. So he's like haunted by her and she was haunted by a ghost too. Whoa. So eventually he (laughs) sees this girl on the street who it's Kim Novak. And she's also playing this part as well. And it's Judy. And I freaking love Judy. Judy. I think Judy's great. She's way more fun than Madeline. She's so like much more fun. Sassy and she's hardworking. I don't know. I just liked her. She's like, I got a job. I can't just be gallivanting. I'm like, yeah, Judy, get that work done. Support yourself. <laughs> so anyway, he meets Judy and he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be awful and I'm going to turn Judy into Madeline. And she's just going to do it because she loves me. And it's <laughs> it's really disturbing. I think that's what kept me from loving this film, if I'm being honest, um, when I was a kid, especially, because I think that really just, like, disturbed me <laughs> on a very deep level. The movie's disturbing. The movie is, it's, it's, got, it's perverted. There are no healthy relationships in this movie. We should point yeah, that out. Right, zero. Uh, so he, he tries to make her like Madeline and he has her dye her hair and he changes her clothes and has her wear the same clothes that Madeline wore. And then one day as they're getting ready to go out, she puts on a necklace that just happened to be the same necklace that Madeline wore. Um, that would have been an heirloom you from Carlotta. Idiot. Yep. Judy, you idiot. Judy, like, come like that, on. That, that part is like a little difficult to like, you didn't think like he might like. Oh, I forgot this necklace was in that painting that you've been obsessing over the woman who was, wait, what? Oh, you, you recognize this necklace? Yeah. Would you help me put this necklace on? Maybe she wanted him to know. That's how on I on a deeper level, subconsciously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's like, I just want, I just want to like get over this whole thing about him thinking that I'm not Madeline because I am. Oh, and I forgot to mention that deeply important plot point where um, after they meet, he asks her out on a date, and there's a second where we, as the audience, are like, is this a different person or is this her? And then um, she writes a letter to him that she never gives to him. That's basically like. Here's what went down. Um, I actually was involved in a plot to have Gavin Elster's wife murdered. Um, I was acting. I was pretending to be Madeline Elster. Um, I really did fall in love with you. I really wish this could work. And then she's like, you know what? It can work. Let's rip up this letter. I'm going to pretend none of that happened. And I'm just going to, you know, move forward with this. Which, you know, it takes guts. It's yeah. a choice. Yeah. And it could have worked. Maybe just don't tell him that you're a fucking murderer. Like, I get that. 
don't tell him you're a murderer and get rid of the evidence, as Jimmy Stewart says later. And also maybe get rid of the necklace. (laughs) Like, come on. (laughs) So Jimmy Stewart's figured it out. And he's legitimately figured out the whole thing really fast. Like, down, he, he gets it. Because um, I might have needed some help. I don't know. He, he thought she just looked a lot like her. Until the necklace. <laughs> Until the necklace. <laughs> so he figures it out. He takes her to the scene of the crime, the bell tower. He aggressively gets her up in the bell tower. What's incredible about this film is that you're on her side. Like, you know she's a murderer, but you're also, like, not cool with how she's being treated. So you, like, feel for her. It's incredible. So yes, she confesses to all of this and she's like, but honestly, I really do love you. Like, can we work this out? And he's like, no, it's too late. And then he says something that I was like, oh shoot, did he really say this? He says, I loved you so, Maddie. And he combines Madeline and Judy kind of together. And I was like, was that really what he said? And is that on purpose? I hope so. Mm. So it's like his love for both of the women as one. I don't know. But then a creepy nun all in shadow is climbing the stairs and she scares me too. She looks really creepy in her shadows. And <laughs> Madeline freaks out about it and like kind of falls slash jumps off the bell tower because I think she thinks it's Gavin or the police or somebody, I don't know. And she kills herself like repeating the legacy of Madeline. And then at the very end, and you guys can you know tell me if you think I'm wrong, you don't totally know what happens because Jimmy Stewart's leaning over over the tower where she just died. And he looks like the poster, like where he's falling when he has that nightmare and he's falling in the nightmare. He has the same stance and they cut before we know the rest of the story. So there's a part of me that's like, does he kill himself too? Like, is he about to jump too? Because that's his falling position. That's he's like doing the same exact position of when he's falling. So that hadn't occurred to me before this viewing, but this viewing I was like, oh, I wonder, because we'll never know. Gavin Elster's never caught. We don't know anyone's future, really, about what's going to happen next. It's very interesting. So that's Vertigo. Let's discuss. I love that he's taking all of his anger out on uh, Judy when uh, Gavin just gets off scot-free. We never see him again. Also, the crime of, like, Judy not actually getting paid for her work, which is terrible. Um, (laughs) But if she helped, like, you know, be an accomplice to a murder, she didn't really get paid for that. Like, she still has to have a day job. That's a good point. I felt kind of bad for her a little bit. I mean, she's a murderer, but that was bothering me because I was like, oh, she should have made bank on this gig. Honestly, what's fascinating about about the whole Judy thing is, like, her story is way more interesting than Scotty's. Like, why don't we tell Vertigo from Judy's perspective? Like, why was she in a position to take this job anyway to see her perspective from her perspective the whole thing like of going through this whole process but then falling in love with a guy and then deciding to like pretend to be the girl again that's actually much more interesting than his journey in my opinion and we're all wondering if the judy story is her real background too like we'll never know if that's even her real background because we never completely know her but i think what's so cool about watching this movie like time after time is knowing that it's her, like knowing that she is, that both people are the same person. And then watching like the duality of her performance, knowing at each moment that she's still choosing to pull off this con, but that she is developing feelings for him. It's a good movie to watch more than once for sure. Yes. I think Kim Novak is great in this. I think she really pulled, you feel like she's two different people. Yeah. You really do. First time I watched it, same thing. When you see Judy, I was like, who is this person? Like even even with the, know. you know, the, the big eyebrows that you would be a dead giveaway, I was still like, what is going on? Yeah, he'll he'll never get her to look like Madeline. One of the funny things that was cracking me up was when they have her transition from being Madeline to Judy. It does feel like a totally different character. They they style her differently. She's dressed differently. She looks differently. Like she's got those really cute like red 
hair bangy things around her face. I don't know what those are. Her status just drops yes. when she's Judy as opposed to Madeline. She feels like a working class girl is Judy and you don't get a whiff of that when she's Madeline. It's like incredible that she's both of these different people. But in the transformation from Madeline to Judy, they decide to paint on these giant brown eyebrows. And so whenever she's like kissing Jimmy Stewart with those, I'd be like, oh, she's gonna rub her eyebrows all over his face. They were just trying to make her look so different, I think, that they just went really overboard with the giant, giant painted on brown eyebrows. Oh, Judy, let me just blend that a little for you. Just, <laughs> just a little. Yeah, she's not good at it. Like that's part of her character. <gasps> oh my God, it's a choice, Ashley. Of that's course so it's smart. a choice. <gasps> Of course, it's a choice. What do you? What, what kind of movie do you think this is? Oh Sarah. my god, you're brilliant. She's supposed to be tacky, so much tackier than Madeline, and that's why he can't get hard for her. And the whole like thing is about like how he wants to get hard for her, but she's got to look like Madeline because he doesn't want to fuck this like low brow, low class woman. He wants the excellence of Madeline. Which is a bummer because Judy is fun and great. Like as a person, if I was picking between the two of them, I would totally pick Judy. I think she'd be way more fun to hang out with than Madeline. Yeah, but she's like too real, you know, like Madeline is this fantasy and like the idea of like being with this fantasy in your mind. I think a big thing about this movie that I think is interesting is the idea of like obsession. Right. And this concept that like he is so he's so obsessed with this person that's not a real person that. I mean, she's she's dead. But besides the fact that she's dead, she's like she's this made up person in his mind. She doesn't even exist. She's being played by someone who isn't a real person. So he's he's truly obsessed with a person that is not a real that is not an actual. But he's never met the real Madeline. It's interesting that a man would fall in love with and needs her to be the fantasy version. And then when he meets the real girl, he, he's not attracted anymore. When he is starting to follow uh, Madeline, like when she goes to that uh, cemetery by the uh, mission or whatever, when we first see her go to the Carlotta tombstone, like it's just, if you look like always this POV, she's always like off in the distance in this fog. It is almost like he's looking at this painting that he's not in. Oh, yeah. And later, like when they, uh, and this, happens a lot and then obviously you see the painting of Carlotta so I, I think that film technique actually makes you think she might be possessed by Carlotta and then later when he really starts to fall for her in the the forest in the woods the camera shot again it's wide you see them both in like this wide shot and they're kind of small in the frame but I thought again it was foggy I thought it looked like two people now together in the same painting Ooh, this is why I love this podcast because we all see it a different way because what I was noticing in this viewing was like, even after she passes, he doesn't want to do the things she did. He wants to continue to watch from the same perspective he was at before. Like after she passes, instead of going and sitting and looking at the painting himself, he watches the women watch the painting. It's like he doesn't want to do the activity. He wants to be on the outside watching the same way he was before. It's like a voyeuristic moment, which is very Hitchcockian. And Hitchcock would do that shit in real life. I think it's just voyeurism. I think it's just Hitchcock being like, I'm a voyeur, so I'm going to put that in every movie I do. <laughs> when you see even that last shot of Midge walking down the hallway of the mental institution that he's in, again, just one shot, her walking slowly off in this dark, distant hallway. It was like she was in her own painting, but he wasn't watching this time. It's, it's oh. interesting. Like, it's heartbreaking when it, yeah. <laughs> Midge. 
But that shot was so textured and gorgeous, and it was gray. Like, the colors tell mm -hmm. a story in this. We're going to get <gasps> to the green. Can we talk about the colors? Let's yes. talk about the colors. <laughs> let's take a moment for colors. Yep, let's take a moment for colors. So green is featured prominently throughout. They even have a quote about green, because it's like, what does the green mean? But, oh, let me tell you, Hitchcock already answers it. Um, I believe Madeline says something like, always green, ever living. So ever living is the green like the green lives on forever and ever and ever and when they're in the forest with those sequoias that are three thousand years old or two thousand years old or however old they are it's just like this ever living wait 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 that may be what she says but i i gotta say that in the things that i've studied and the things that i've that i've watched it seems like green is actually a symbol for death hear me out on this Okay, when he first sees Madeline, she's in this like green thing with a black dress, right? And Hitchcock always talks about how in this movie, this movie is a lot about necrophilia. And it is about the love of people that are dead. Like, you know, this obsession with Carlotta. But then what, the real obsession with death is Scotty's obsession with Madeline after he already knows that she's gone. And this idea of loss. And I think what's interesting about what you were saying about... Um, being upset that he's trying to change Judy into um, Madeline, I think you can kind of relate to it in a way. And it, the way that it's not perverted is to kind of be like, oh, he's just dealing with loss. He's dealing with the fact that like from jump, we see that he's a traumatized person that has like literally let people out of slip out of his hands and not been able to sort of like balance himself, I think, since that moment. Right. So I feel like it's this concept of of loss and of death and of like trying to deal with that loss and like get life back. So when she comes out of the bathroom, for example, and she's like shrouded in that green light, some people talk about how this is the idea of him wanting to have sex with Madeline, this woman that is dead. The way they shoot it, it looks almost translucent. So she literally looks like a ghost in green coming through when we first see um, Judy dresses Madeline again. And there's something to me in this movie about almost like a Greek tragedy where like there is a destiny that's inescapable about death for this woman from from jump that she doesn't that she's not even aware of herself. And um, when she's Judy, like when he first sees her, she's in a green dress. Yeah. And so the shot is just like her in a green dress surrounded by green cars. And I just feel like she has this like destiny that she can't escape of death coming for her and her being surrounded by death. And even when she comes out and he's trying to like bring her back to life, it's this person that he's trying to sleep with that is a dead person or a person that is going to die soon. Even when he after he saves her from drowning into his apartment where we see the inside of his apartment the first time, like, like you said, that he's got green pillows on the couch. There was like a green lamp. There's little bits of green everywhere. So that makes total sense like that. Yes. And actually in the things that I've read, um, Scotty is red and she is green. Right. And the only time that you ever see them in opposite colors is that moment after they have swam together in the water and she like wakes up in his bed and she puts on a robe, she puts on a red robe and he's wearing green. And it is this, and is this is the first time where they've actually interacted instead of him just following her, they've switched their colors. And it's like this moment for Scotty where instead of him just being like, I am doing my job, 
he is now in love with her. He's jumped into the water to save her. And now he is just like a switch has happened. And it's not just his job anymore. He's he's wearing her colors and she's wearing his. Oh my God, I love that. I do also want to add the gray in there now too, because what I'm realizing, Barbara Belgetti's as Midge is watching, she's wearing gray and walking away from the mental hospital in a gray outfit. And then the gray outfit that um, Madeline wears that she's killed in, I guess Kim Novak was talking about like, I don't like this gray suit. I don't want to wear this. Can we switch it up? And Hitchcock was like, this is the thing I've got in my head. Like, it's this. I see it. It's this gray suit. It's these shoes. So now I'm like, since he clearly put so much meaning into each of these things, I'm wondering what that represents too. Yes. And additionally to that gray that she walks away, and that's really interesting. She, for the most of the movie, is yellow. If you watch the first scene that she's in, she is surrounded by yellow. She's always wearing yellow. She has, it's like a yellow lamp, a yellow chair, a yellow shirt. It is like, whenever you watch the scene and you have this in mind, you're like, oh my God, how did I not see all the yellow that happens when Mitch is this color? And mm -hmm. it's interesting because I think they normally, they sometimes put him in blue when he's in a scene yeah. with her. If they're complimenting. complimentary colors. I just think it's interesting that they've literally color coded each character like that. And that Mitch is obviously kind of this like friend color, like yellow. When you send someone yellow roses, it means we're friends and red roses uh. means that you love them. I wonder if there's a whole thing about like Mitch being friend zoned. In addition to that, uh, the shots to prove that she's like in the friend zone, I, I just always watch like uh, that first scene when he's in her apartment, like there'd be a lot of shots of her like medium or close up. He would He would have a tendency to like, walk away or he'd be more off in the distance in the frame and i'm like oh they're <laughs> not connecting i got not it not it. not in a romantic way poor mitch she's the best like i she's just adore best. her she deserves better than all of these people but also yeah. she should be looking for somebody better because i think she can do better she's just lovely mitch take the glasses off and find someone better i couldn't tell she's an artist or a costume designer or like a clothes designer she was an artist of sorts when she painted herself as Carlotta, how long did that take? I'm, I was thinking oh, that before. That like, was hilarious, though. So I was awkward. on her side. So awkward. It's a funny joke. I was with her on that. I was no, like, I, I think feel that's like funny. it's like, Mitch, now we know why you can't get the guys. Like, uh. <laughs> oh, I totally dug it. I was like, she's funny. I think she's great. <laughs> but I, I love her apartment, and I just wanted to put that out there. They all have exceptional apartments, especially Midge. Her apartment's so freaking cute. But one of my favorite moments in, like, the whole movie is towards the beginning, um, and it's kind of like when we find out how Midge feels about him. So the way they shoot it is so unique and so cool. I forget exactly what they're talking about. Oh, it's about how they used to be engaged, I think. And mm. he's like, we were engaged in college, but you broke it off, remember? And instead of getting like a close up of her face straight on, it's like we see her face from the side. She's looking away from the camera and just the way she moves her head, the way she moves her, like just with a little movement, you know exactly how she feels about him. You know, she still has feelings for him. And I love moments like that when it's not so completely obvious, when it feels like a real human moment, as opposed to like, hello camera, here is my soul. It's like we still see her soul without her totally playing to the camera. And I, I just love that. And it happens again. Oh my God, another moment I love that's kind of similar but not is at the very end when um, Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak are, he, he, they're like in the bell tower and he's like pushing her up and they're going through this fight. They're in shadows a lot of the time too. So we hear their dialogue, we see their movements, but we don't always see their faces. And 
it adds to like this shadow, this mystery of like, what is each of them thinking? Because we kind of don't know until the very, very end, one of the most beautiful moments. Oh, I'm skipping through moments like it's nothing. Um, one of the most beautiful moments is when he says like, duh, don't keep the souvenir of a killing. Don't be sentimental about it. And then you see it in his brain click like she's sentimental about it because she loves me and I love her and this is wrong. Like it was, it's this beautiful moment of him realizing what that means of like, oh no, I understand this whole situation. I understand how terrible it is. I understand that she loves me. Whoa, that's a cool moment. And it's like he catches himself using the word sentimental. It's such an interesting script. Is, is it because he means like, uh, is it because he's saying like, you shouldn't have been so sentimental. And then he's like, how could I be saying that about a murder? And then also like realizing what that would mean if she would keep this. Yes, it's layered. It's a really interesting script because it's not so much like when you're writing quotes down, they're not like these iconic words necessarily, you know? I don't, it's not like Billy Wilder, right? There's not a lot of like necessarily wit or anything like that, but yeah. it's so succinct and so smart. So it's like you have everything you need, but it's not necessarily dialogue that's like, you don't come to this movie for the dialogue. You know what I mean? I feel like the dialogue is pretty traditional, pretty succinct. You could watch this movie on, on mute and you would still know exactly what's going on. Because I was like writing down quotes and I was like, well, this is just a line. But what makes it important is like what's going on behind it. The script isn't, um, doesn't have an ego. Ooh, that's the, what I'm trying to say. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, the script isn't the star, but I don't think that there's any fat to it either. Like I think that everything about it is incredibly deliberate and important. I feel like uh, this is definitely the most I've ever enjoyed it, but something I kind of want to bring into the picture that I was realizing is I think one of the reasons that I had a hard time with this movie, especially in the past, because I remember watching it for the first time when I was 14. I, I remember feeling like really sick when he starts trying to like control Kim Novak. And when I saw it again in my 20s, I remember feeling that same thing. And what I realized yesterday watching it was I, I feel physically ill when I watch this movie when he starts to change her. There's something about it that really triggers me. And it's the same feeling I get during Sunset Boulevard because I've tried to explain to people, like, I think these movies are incredible. I don't know what it is, but there's like a grotesqueness that really hits me in both of these movies. And it has to do with uh, someone controlling another human. There's something about that that like doesn't sit in my body. I get very um, ill. But that's the point. That's just right. I mean, that's exactly how you are supposed to feel that. He's like this toxic, creepy guy at that point. It's just trying to get the love of his life back, even though he should know that's not going to be the way to do it. I think that's the point is you're supposed to feel unsettled, but you're also, I think you're also supposed to like possibly relate to, I don't know, to both of them, I think. I think you relate yeah. to both of them. But I think that's also why I don't enjoy necessarily, that's why I haven't seen it a lot. Because I've only seen Vertigo a handful of times, same with Sunset Boulevard, and I've appreciated them each time. But I think the reason I'm not like, let's pop this one on, is because I think it makes me, like I, I viscerally feel this film. You know, yeah. I think that's what it is. I think this movie is trying to shine a light on human things that are not so nice. And I think there's something about Hitchcock kind of being like, I'm just going to be super just like open about like all the things that I feel weird about or that I've got idiosyncrasies or like weirdness about. And I mean, I, I haven't studied him as a person all that much, so I don't really I can't go into that so much. It seems a little troubled. But the movie itself, I think that it's supposed to creep you out because it does 
explore these ideas of, you know, what happens when you become obsessed with your desire to that extent that we can all relate to, especially when it comes to death and loss to that extent. And and also, I think the idea, the whole point of calling it vertigo is that he never, he doesn't have his footing. He's lost his mind. He he doesn't feel grounded. He feels like he's swirling around in that, that like little like hurricane looking thing that they show all the time. Spirally, yeah. And even the music, which I could do a whole thing on the music. Oh my God. Okay, okay. So one of the things that my dorky self has like YouTubed is like them discussing like the and the underscore of that that's like the bottom note and the top note are going in opposition to each other so when one goes on upper scale like the the other one goes so the music itself is an actual spiral that is supposed to make you feel uneasy and uncomfortable and it is creepy music because it's bernard herman but the, but the actual notes themselves are the spiral that they're showing you visually. So I think what's, anyway, to cap that up in one long, one statement is to say that I feel like it's supposed to make you uneasy because the main character himself, whose perspective we always are looking from, we're never looking at Madeline's face when she's looking at the painting. We're looking only from Scotty's face, as we talked about. So it's only from his perspective. I think you're supposed to feel that sense of, Unease. You're not supposed to watch this movie and feel good and feel like, oh my God, Holiday Inn. Like you're supposed to watch this movie and be like, whoa, necrophilia, obsession, not feeling grounded, loss, damn. Like, you know, he wasn't going to win the whole time. So you're saying I feel vertigo watching vertigo is what I am. I, yeah. mean, I don't know if I really even count even one scene that has like any full happiness. Even when, you know, the moments of him and Madeline and love doing their their things like you could tell there's still a, a wedge she's conflicted because she's falling in love but she still has a job to do there's i don't know there's not really one scene in this entire movie i think that you could be at the end of the scene oh that was fun there's not a lot of hope in this picture yes. <laughs> right hitchcock usually had to alter his endings from the source material because they felt american audiences couldn't accept them so like even or even British audiences. So like he does The Lodger, that's like 1927, that's his first like big hit in England. And it's about like a serial killer um, who's hunting down women. And they had to make crystal clear in the film that even though in the book, that guy was the killer, the, the Lodger, in the movie, he couldn't be, right? We have to change this. It's not the killer. The killer is somebody else. It's all okay. And then same with Suspicion. In that book, Cary Grant's character is the killer. He is trying to kill his wife. Wow. But they have to take that out for the movie. Rebecca, too. In the book, Rebecca. So in the movie, Rebecca, he kills his wife, but it's an accident. In the book, Rebecca, he fucking murders her. Spoiler alert, Rebecca, but he does. So, like, there's constant changing <laughs> of source material. So this was taken from a French novel, and I think it's the first time he doesn't have to change it. He lets it sit. He lets it be. I mean, I'm sure there were changes in the story, but this is an unhappy ending. And it's kind of one of the first Hitchcock films that has something that isn't entirely wrapped up in a bow. Like, mystery not solved. This is where we're at. It feels Whoa. like a foreign film, doesn't it? Because, like, yeah. it just, like, doesn't really, like, it's kind of like, where are we going with this? Like, what is happening? Why are we doing this? He kills his lead halfway through the movie. I remember the first time watching it being like, so what happens now? What, what do we do? <laughs> so that's unique in itself. But it just goes to show you how, like, how much we as Americans are used to, like, being force-fed this, like, 
you know, very clear cut, like, and then it has a happy ending, you know what I mean? And like it, in other countries, they're like, there's some gray area here and people are dark and like, maybe it's weird. And we're like, what? It's so slow. Like it's such a well-made film and every moment is so deliberate, but you're right, it is so slow at parts. And that's what critics didn't like about it in the 50s. This movie got mixed reviews and wasn't a hit because people complained about the pacing. But I think that's kind of what what makes it, that it's playing with things that are not normally necessarily like there in our movies. A lot of movies don't hold up for me because of pacing sometimes. This one I still think does, but I, I just him driving, following her everywhere. I mean, if it was an interesting spot or not, like I just feel like you almost needed to see that so we could see his beginning obsessions with her. And, and... Do you guys want to hear something crazy about that driving? Okay. Yes, homie. All right. So I watched it. Did you do the drive? You did the drive. I did the drive. <laughs> No, but somebody else did. And I watched a YouTube a few years ago, this guy who um, they actually looked at the streets that they were on in San Francisco and the literal streets that they do makes uh, one of those vertigo symbols. No. No. Yeah, like they're driving in circles on actual streets. Like they're not going anywhere. Wow. Which is a weird thing, but that's true. The detailing is insane, but I think I think I think the slowness of it, which is so bold and so like badass, the fact that they're like, you can wait. You know what I mean? Like we're just gonna actually follow yes. this girl in real time. <laughs> but I I, th- I think that part of that has to do with this idea of like it being a dream. Like yeah. it playing with fantasy and reality and it being kind of in this like other world of like, like the plot isn't really like something you, that you'd really be like, but this really happened. You know what I mean? And I feel like it's on purpose. It's a little bit kind of like, is this reality or is he dreaming this? The pacing has, the pacing kind of relates to that and that you're not supposed to feel like this is an actual reality thing. You're supposed to be kind of like creeped out. Like you're supposed to be kind of like, I don't, this doesn't feel like real life. And I I think that's kind of like the whole point. Like it, it plays into that idea of like, oh my God, is that a ghost? Or is that like really her? You know what I mean? You're never supposed to feel like you got, you have your footing. Vertigo. (laughs) there are several times when they employ that too where you are wondering if it's a dream or not like when he first gets out of the sanitarium we're not sure if we're seeing another dream of his right because it's like we haven't seen him leave the sanitarium we see midge leave and they flash awake and he's at the building and he sees the green car and you're kind of like oh my gosh are we in another dream is he gonna have another carlotta dream so like they they play with you in that way too so i hadn't thought of it in that way that's why we see all the repetitiveness the repetitive driving to kind of alter what we as an audience think about like what is reality is this a dream is this awake and i want to tie in the repetitiveness too so you had mentioned like the drive is circles i heard like you know repetition is a huge theme in this film um but they do repetition a lot in the music so i want to make sure we extra touch on bernard herman so bernard herman wrote this score yay he is fantastic he does so many of hitchcock's scores i think that they should do this at the hollywood bowl i would love to see an orchestra play this score oh, i think that oh would be God. incredible yeah so hollywood bowl if you're listening please do that can they do a night of bernard herman like the day they were stood still like all of his creepy amazing stuff 
they should. It's funny that you say the creepy thing too, because what you the, what you sang earlier was the theme for the show Suspense. There was a TV show that Alfred Hitchcock originally invented, or TV show, a radio show that he invented called Suspense, and that was the theme song, and it was the Bernard Herrmann Orchestra. And a famous person that wrote for that show is Lucille Fletcher. She was the queen of writing suspenseful radio plays, like creepy, unusual plays, and she was married to Bernard Herrmann. So they have, they're like these two, like creepy, wonderful people. Yes, that come up with these things. But he did the music for that show, and what you sang was the theme of that show. But his music is so haunting, and what I was reading too about this, I hadn't, what I had read was that it like, there's a rising and falling as well. So like what you were saying with the rising and falling at one time, he was also doing it like with movement of the story. So there would be a couple of times when he would repeat a fall over and over again, like the same couple of notes falling and it would be in repetition. And he'd do that with rising notes as well. So once I read that, I was like, oh my God, that's so fascinating that it's like not just a thought, like what you were saying that they both occur at the same time, the rising and falling and the haunting that you kind of hear throughout it, but that it's purposely being repetitive and going either up or down depending on like, what we're doing in this scene. I, I loved that. I don't know that I explained it very well, but I could hear it when I was it's watching brilliant. it. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah, the it, it's suspenseful, but it's like, da, 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 you know, that kind of thing where you're just like, oh my God, I feel so freaked out right now, but it's yes. also about falling. Yes, and it mirrors the streets of San Francisco. I mean, they chose San Francisco, which has the steepest hills. They're always up and down, up and down. Oh, Oof. so that oh, like ties in with it. That yeah. makes well, I didn't sense. think about yeah. that. Yeah. Also, San Francisco is so foggy and creepy. Like yes. it's so foggy there. I don't know about creepy. It looks very full house to me. So that's where my brain goes whenever <laughs> I see the Golden Gate Bridge. It can be scary to drive up those those streets because I tell you, you can't see anything below you. Like you're sitting on like a stoplight up the hill, but you can't see straight ahead of you because the car is in the way because you're such on an incline. And I just remembered right now that he literally lives on Lombard Street. I think I was looking up the location details earlier and Lombard Street is like the most crooked street in the world, right? Or the US, not the world. I don't know, but I believe I I remember being a tourist driving down it and being like, I I didn't drive, I was a kid, but my parents did. (laughs) And I remember being like, whoa, this must be the crookedest street in the world. At least in the US. And it made me appreciate Bullet even more. I don't know if you guys have seen the film Bullet, but I very much enjoy that film. And they do a car chase scene on the streets of San Francisco. And that must've been so insanely difficult. Oh yeah, car chases in San Francisco, man. But also, okay, I'm glad I brought in Bernard Herrmann. Also, I mentioned this in the podcast we did about Lucille Fletcher, but he left her for her cousin, Lucy. And that will always kill me a little. Yep. And they still, I think, remained working perfect for each other. Right? But they wrote Wuthering Heights and opera together right before he died. And it never, I think like, got traction. I think it's kind of messed up to like marry somebody and then like be with somebody that has the same name. I don't know that I could do that. I feel like I'd be kind of like, I already know a Lucy and this is awkward. And it's her cousin. What's your middle name? What's your middle name? I wonder if he was like, well, she's Lucille and you're Lucy. Those are very different names. You're right. That's probably what happened. Also, I realized today when I was writing down Madeline, if you shorten it, it's mad and she might be going mad. And I was like, did you guys do that on purpose? Could be, could be. One thing we really need to discuss is the letter writing scene. So apparently that was taken out of the film for a while. Like Hitchcock wasn't sure about it. 
because he felt like it was a little heavy handed and it is. He's like, ah, too much Judy, too much Judy, more back to the men. <laughs> a woman sharing her feelings. No, we don't no, want that. I don't want to hear about Judy. I could see being concerned about revealing that because we figure it out later through Scotty's point of view, but. Well, originally they weren't going to reveal it. It was later in the film. And then Hitchcock was like, whoa, how cool would it be if we're led into Judy's perspective way earlier so we can see the dilemma that she has. We can kind of surmise from her memory what happened, but it's in the letter that we find out that she loves him. So they were like, we never really included that she loved him besides the letter. So if you take out the letter scene, you don't have the love. That's a smart that choice. Yeah. That's a smart choice. Yeah, because otherwise she's just with this creepy guy and going to this tower at the end. You're like, why, why are you doing this? And it's fun to watch somebody that you you know is pretending and Scotty doesn't know yet and it's so you feel like you're in on something mm -hmm. and you can understand like oh my god like she's pretending because she's hoping that he'll like her for her like it's a whole nother movie yeah this is like two movies in one it is and you just made me realize a hitchcock trope of like he loves telling us who the villain is ahead of time he does it in several of his movies and so not a lot of people like doing that but hitchcock can totally pull it off and has pulled it off with one exception mm. which is frenzy which is not good and i stopped watching it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah he'll tell you at the beginning um, so yeah, it, it works really well that they, they clue us in with her because then we could be part of her journey as well. It lets us in mm -hmm. So I wanted to add that whole letter writing moment because I did feel I, in my notes, I was like, oh, you don't trust us to figure this out, Hitchcock? Like you need to tell us again exactly what happened for the people that were like, hmm, was that a dream? I don't know, you know? I don't know that I would have figured it out. I mean, I watched this movie as a child, so I'm not sure, but it just seems like it is kind of like a weird plot twist that she is in on it. Like, I don't yeah. think I would have guessed that. So it's like we they were hoping we would get everything from the flashback, but we don't. Mm. That Like yeah. we do, we see what happened, but there could still be a part of you that's like, maybe that's a dream or maybe, I don't know. By adding the letter thing, they make it definitive. Haley Mills is two different girls in the parent trap. So maybe this girl has a lookalike. It's her evil twin sister. I know you love that Betty Davis movie where she's got the evil twin. A Stolen, stolen Life. life. So like maybe a it's movie. A Stolen Life 2.0. 100%. Alfred Hitchcock is the director of this film. I do want to mention we're probably not going to talk about James Stewart because we've covered him extensively on this podcast. So if you want to hear more about James Stewart, please go listen to maybe Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I think we talk about him the most. I will say if I recall his background, it's that he was born... He had a perfect life. He went to Princeton. He was friends with Henry Fonda. That's how he got into acting and like moved across the country with his buddy, became a huge star, and nothing ever went wrong for him. That's Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> That's like exactly wow. what you would guess. That's like what you would guess, right? Did he stay married like his whole life to one yes. woman? Yes, I think so. Classic. He just, that He just had a perfect life. So go listen to that. Um, director Alfred Hitchcock, he directed this piece. He was known as the master of suspense. He's an incredibly prolific director. He's more successful than almost any other director. He directed longer than most people direct, and he directed hits longer than most people do. His career, based on how long he was directing, I think he would have had to average two movies a year directing. I, I don't know how anyone could do that, but... For 40 years? From 27 to 76. He slowed down a little bit later, but yeah, he... Yeah. He didn't make as many movies in the 70s. 
And Alan, since we last spoke, I added to my Hitchcock collection. I have now seen even more Hitchcock. Whoa. That was what I did during the pandemic. <laughs> and I have opinions and we'll get to them. Yeah, please share. They're not all great, but when they're great, they're pretty great. Well, and then when they're a gem, when you can like see the good in them and you're like, oh, I totally see what you were going for and I like it. Like one of the ones I added to my collection this year was The Trouble with Harry. I finally watched it and it was delightful. Totally different tone than normal Hitchcock. And I completely enjoyed it. Is McLean in that one? Shirley McLean? Shirley McLean, her first big film role. I love that movie. It's like an autumnal, yeah. It's dark, but it's funny. Like, I'm digging it. So yeah, I liked that one. <laughs> I also added to my collection, I ended up watching Saboteur finally, which was good. Mm. Um, I watched uh, The Family Plot, which I did enjoy, but it was exceptionally kooky, sometimes a little too kooky. And then um, what else did I watch that I added? to the collection of Hitchcock in my brain. Oh crap, I don't remember now. Oh, I started watching Frenzy, really hated it. Um, Frenzy, <laughs> actually this is a great example. So Frenzy um, was the first film that Hitchcock could show nudity in and you can feel what a pervert that man is. Like Ugh. he, it's a movie about a serial rapist who rapes and kills women. All of the women in the of cast course. end up being murdered basically. And um, he shows the full rape. So it's like, you get like several minutes of rape and it's I did not like see this one. they have to be naked and you can tell it's almost like Hitchcock is enjoying it. It's like repulsive. It feels repulsive. Um, and it has really good reviews. I was shocked. Like men seem to really love this film and I don't get it. You would think that like eventually he'd be like, I should talk about something else. You know what I mean? Like you think he'd eventually be like, well, I did enough serial people, the serial <laughs> killers. Right? Yep. Yep. So I turned that one off. The Birds was good, though. I did watch The Birds, too. So I liked that. I, there was another one I'm forgetting. But yeah, I, I amped up because I had seen a bunch of Hitchcock and I was like, fill those gaps, Sarah. Find the movies that you haven't seen. Watch yeah, them. good for you. Thanks. Thanks. I supported a pervert. <laughs> I have not seen all Hitchcock movies because there's so many. So I, I did yeah. not see I did not see Frenzy. But that sounds disturbing to me. He's a good guy. Who? What? Alan. <laughs> oh, Alan. I was like, Hitchcock's a good guy. You need to elaborate. No, no, Alan's a really good there guy. There was even that scene in uh, in Marnie that was very disturbing. I don't oh, know if you, that was yeah. the one, Alan. I watched it and I thought of you because you had warned me. So there's a rape in Marnie as well. And you were correct about that. Alan was like, there's a scene where there's like not consent, but it's her husband. And so like, you know, and James Bond can't not have sex on film. So they have to have this scene in there. But I liked it besides that. Yeah, like, I mean, it was it, it was creepy. But I, I actually liked the movie, but it's it's yeah. uh, that part is yeah no. So back to Hitchcock. So some of his some of his famous films. I mean, if you start towards the beginning, his earlier works. We mentioned The Lodger. That was kind of his first big deal film, and he considers it his first real like this is a film I directed and I'm proud of. And from this point on, I am a filmmaker. Um, and I got to see it. <laughs> I mentioned this on the last one. I got to see it at TCM Fest with a live piano player who wrote a score just for it. And it was really cool. Whoa. Um, and then, I mean, he does the 39 Steps, which Alan and I have seen together in theaters before. I even love the play based on that. Um, the Lady Vanishes, uh, Rebecca, Suspicion, Shadow of a Doubt. Shadow of a Doubt is fantastic, yes. Um, Notorious. Okay, let me tell you, Notorious is my favorite one. I really love Notorious so much. 
and nobody knows Notorious. They they don't. Do they know? Well, we we're nerds, so we all do. Well, you guys know Notorious. Yeah. But I feel like I'm constantly like, you don't know that one with Ingrid Bergman and the Nazis? Where she has a reputation because she's had sex before, so she's Notorious. Let me tell you something. Yes, you're so right. And also the <laughs> romance, the romance is off oh. the charts. As compared yeah. to, I feel like not a lot of Hitchcocks have like the romance that ends up happy. And in that movie, the way that Cary Grant loves Ingrid Bergman, but is so like not sure whether or not he can give his heart to her. And then he saves her like a Prince Charming at the end. Oh, I fucking love well, that And that's movie. got the famous kiss. That movie was how um, Hitchcock got around production code because they were they were like, they had to be sexy together and they had to figure out a way to do that because kisses couldn't last longer than a certain amount of seconds. So that's where he came up with the idea to have a conversation while kissing. And it's one of the sexiest kisses on oh, film. It's so hot. Oh my God, yes. when they're talking about the chicken. Yes. Oh my God, it's and so good. They reuse that in Rear Window. Like Grace Kelly and James Stewart have such yeah. excellent oh. chemistry, and they reuse that tactic of having a conversation while, while like you kissing. Kiss. Yeah. So you can see the chemistry and feel it, but you get past production code. Isn't that interesting? That's so hot. That's fascinating. And then we haven't even gotten to the big ones yet. Like, we we transition into like the 50s which are his big deal ones i mean i missed rope we did rope is great too but we get strangers on a train dial him for murder to catch a thief the man who knew too much which was a remake of his doing the man who knew too much in the 40s in england um vertigo north by northwest psycho the birds his films have 46 oscar nominations and six wins and he never won the best director oscar what that's so wrong he, even though he's a disgusting human, he should have won the best Oscar. <laughs> um, so he's famous for his use of camera movement to mimic a person's gaze and then turning the viewers into voyeurs. That's kind of what he does. He's very detail oriented. Um, usually every detail ties back into the story. Um, it's like all of the parts fit into the whole. Um, he used a lot of celebrities numerous times. So Cary Grant and James Stewart each did four films with him and Ingrid Bergman and Grace Kelly each did three. He was born in East London and there's a quote on his page that says he could not remember ever having a playmate. And I feel like that tracks. Um, so <laughs> he went to a Jesuit grammar school. Um, and they had really strict discipline there. Like they used rubber canes on the boys to punish them. And so he says that's where he developed his sense of fear because you'd be sitting in school knowing you had done something wrong and you'd have to wait at the end of the day to like basically get beaten. And he was like, that was where it all started for me. And I'm like, uh... whoa. Um, World War One rolls around and he is 14 years old. He can't enlist. But eventually when he can, he's classified as C3, which means you're only suitable for sedentary work. So he couldn't actually participate in a lot of the fighting, which is probably a good thing. Um, and after that, he ends up working in an advertising office called Henley's, where he starts to work with like proofs, um, like film proofs. And he said that was kind of his first step towards cinema and him realizing he liked it. So that um, when the famous Players Lasky, which is like, which is an arm of Paramount, um, when they opened a studio in London, he was like, oh, I think I would like to work with film. Let me try to get a job here. So he started working there and he was a title card designer at first. Um, eventually the studios bought out. It becomes something else. Um, he's working on a picture called Woman to Woman. And he meets the editor slash script girl, who is Alma Revel, who is basically the other side of Hitchcock. Like, we do not have Hitchcock. I said this on the other podcast with Alan. I'm so sorry. I'm repeating myself, but it's true. We don't have Hitchcock without Alma Revel. Uh, Hitchcock had four hands. Two of them are Almas. That's like one of the film critics of the time said that. Or not of the... 
was he of the time? He said it in the 80s, whatever. But that's kind of the gist of it is that she's like the woman behind the man. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think she properly gets credited for it. What did she do? Like, what was her job? I think it was like a lot of script stuff and a lot of like, she, I think she was a polisher, right? Wasn't that her her kind of role? She was another part of like the details. Like he never would have been as good as he was without her noticing things and commenting on them, right? Wow. Yeah, I, I don't, I mean, I don't think things would have been produced the way they were produced if she was not there with him. Who knows what some of these movies would have ended up like. So Wow. And she worked as an assistant director and editor on his early films. When they started out, she was higher up on the chain than he was. So he like looked up to her and she was like um, of a higher status on the set than he was. And she knew a lot more. So yeah, I just think she's a badass and I wish we talked about her more in general. And like, I want to know what she actually accomplished because I don't totally know. Her name is Alma Revel. Alma Revel, A-L-M-A and then R-E-V-I-L-L-E. And I'm glad that we're talking about this because on the last one that Alan and I did where we talked about Hitchcock, I could not fucking remember her last name. I can only ever remember Alma. Like it just, that always sticks in my head. Yeah. I kept calling her Alma. Alma, no last name. Alma Revel. That's a cool name. But yeah, I, (laughs) I want a movie about her. I want to know what she contributed because no one really accurately keeps notes about what she contributed. But like Alfred Hitchcock has said, like she was a huge contributor. A lot of people have been like, yes, she contributed a lot. So I'm like, well, more details. How so, please? Yeah. Yeah. But I know she was a script writer. So I imagine it had she had a vision with the scripts and stuff, you know, like she was smart. One thing again, uh, uh, the only thing with Vertigo was she was. Like Alma was like, I, I I love Kim Novak in this, but there's just some scenes where you could see her off in the distance walking. She's like, I just thought, I just, I just, her ankles, they just look too big. Her ankles look <gasps> too big for the shot. And I was like, I was just like, because like everything else you read about Alma, she's like fantastic and wonderful. And then I read that part. So it always stuck in my mind like, oh, but again, again, it's, it's I mean, it's not, it's not great, but at the same time, uh, like everything else you, you would read about her, if she was wonderful it was just that one i was that just always stuck in my mind i was like this is that's terrible that's yeah that's, yeah well thanks yeah. for letting us know um well i'm glad you brought that up we're gonna get back to hitchcock but that reminded me of something that hitchcock had said because kim novak was not supposed to play that part they wanted this actress vera miles who is in psycho vera miles was an actress who was who had a contract with hitchcock and he wanted her to have this part but she ended up getting pregnant and this was hitchcock's quote about that I was offering her a big part, the chance to become a beautiful, sophisticated blonde, a real actress. We'd have spent a heap of dollars on it, and she has the bad taste to get pregnant. I hate pregnant women, because then they have children. Oh my god, are you serious? <laughs> There's no chance he said that sarcastically, did he? Like, probably maybe, not. Maybe. You know, the things men could get away with back then I baffles mm-hmm. me. I don't... <laughs> the things they still get away with. But yeah, the extra things where you're like... That was public. He said that. And they were like, mm, it's fine. So after he starts making films in London and he meets Alma Revel, he goes to Germany for a little while. And that's where he learns about German expressionism and how to tell stories on film using those tools. And then um, he ends up making The Lodger, which is his first like really big kind of hit. And that's in 1927. He's known for his cameos. I want to mention that because I don't see his cameo in this film. So we'll get there. It happened. When was his cameo? remember where it was it was like you just see the exterior he just literally just walked by on the sidewalk that was it uh, okay i didn't see it but i i also get really <laughs> lazy about a cameo i'm kind of like good for you i don't care i'm one of those people that's kind of like whatever so i don't always spot them um 
his daughter, he had it. So he and Alma are married. They have a daughter named Patricia and she's actually in strangers on a train. She plays the sister of um, the girl that the tennis player falls in love with. Um, he was notorious for being a prankster and he would do, I, I think pranksters are annoying personally because I think they're just kind of expending a lot of energy to ruin someone's day is what I think of people like that. There's two kinds of pranksters. There's like Jim on the office that are like, if you put a stapler in jello, like that's funny. But then if you do something that like harms or ruins someone's day, like it's like a balance. I think you have to have a lot of social awareness to be a good prankster. Um, but he would do things like have a dinner party and dye the food blue. And I'm like, what a prank, you. I can't eat this. It's blue. It's blue. <laughs> or he would rent a horse and have the horse be taken to someone's dressing room. And I'm like, oh, you devilish trickster. <laughs> like, I don't know. That's silly to me. So I wrote it down. He eventually comes to New York in 1938. He finds out he's famous in America. He was like, oh, I didn't know that my films were seen here. Cool. That's great. So in 1939, he signs a contract with David O. Selznick, who's like a big independent producer. They don't really get along, but they respect each other. And what's cool about the partnership is David O. Selznick lets him work with other studios. So it's not like completely exclusive. So that's great. Rebecca ends up being a huge hit here. That's their first film they make together, 1940. It wins the Oscar for Best Picture that year. They end up eventually, too, making Suspicion, which is when Hitchcock starts producing his own work as well. Oh, I wrote that this film got mixed reviews when it came out. Um, people were torn about it, and it only broke even at the box office. So it ends up becoming kind of like Citizen Kane, a hit after the fact when people have had time to consider it. Wow. This film invented the dolly zoom, which we talked about earlier, which is like that's a camera effect where when you see a solid item and the things around it look as though they're moving forward and back, uh, that was used for the first time in this. His most profitable film ends up being one of his later films. That's Psycho. He was knighted. And here's where we get to all the bullshit stuff. So Hitchcock was gross. He had peepholes in his actresses' dressing rooms and would watch them through peepholes. Um, he sexually harassed a lot of them. He apparently did not sexually harass Kim Novak, so that's good. But um, the big story that I had heard was about Tippi Hedren. He sexually harassed her. He had the crew um, isolate her. Like, they weren't allowed to really speak with her. Um, and when she did not... Uh, reciprocate his sexual advances, he blacklisted her. So he, she had signed a seven-year contract with him. And when they were making Marnie, he was like really gross and hitting on her and groping her and being like awful. And she was like, absolutely not. No, get away from me. And he was like, okay, so you're not going to have a career anymore. He wouldn't let her make any other pictures. So since she was under contract exclusively to him, she couldn't make any other movies and he wouldn't use her in films um, because she turned him down sexually. So yeah, that was, that's shitty. And he kind of has, I think Alan had mentioned this last year. He was famously impotent, but was like incredibly, he was always trying to like be sexual about things. So I'm like, what's that? What's break that down? Like, I don't totally get that. Overcompensating in the creepiest way, I guess. That's what one of his feminist critics had said. They were like, that's why all of his work ends up being like things like this that are like kind of grotesquely sexual because that was Hitchcock himself, where it's like he found these dark avenues to explore that that couldn't be fulfilled in his real life um but yeah i i don't think that's i i don't think what he did to vera miles or tippy hedron was okay and it sounds like he was pretty gross unless you were like grace kelly and you were already i don't know i feel like there were certain people he knew he couldn't totally mess with and other people he was like oh if i mess with them that's fine so i wanted to put that out there i feel like his work kind of goes from chic to like seedy and gory over time that's like the trajectory of his work 
we get these like very flashy, glamorous, like spy, whodunit, the wrong man kind of films. And then we we head into Psycho and the birds and these more kind of, I don't know, I guess Vertigo is the tipping point between the two. Because after Vertigo is North by Northwest. And then after that, it's all like darker, I guess. I don't know. That's just what I was thinking. Also, I mentioned that this was a French novel. The title of the French novel translated to English is From Among the Dead. Ooh. And then I had mentioned earlier, these are fun facts. Fun facts, everybody. The bell tower, the mission, the bell tower. Um, that's not real. The real bell tower burned down. So the way they that's did that. That's why it looks painted. <laughs> that's why it looks painted because it was. They used uh, scale models, matte paintings, and trick photography to get that shot in there. It looks like that. And I guess if you go in person, it's still there now, but like, or like what they built is there, not, not for this film, but it's really small and people are disappointed when they go to that site because they want to see the Hitchcock <laughs> bell tower and it's not there. The only tech thing that doesn't super hold up is the, when they're both falling and you can really see like the green screen behind them. That doesn't totally hold up. The cutout head just moving. Yes. Toward, that's, that's just, that just looks campy today. I wonder if at the time we would have been like, wow, can you believe those visuals do you think we would have been like that maybe because like what else have they seen like that people probably hadn't seen anything like that what i was thinking was pink elephants on parade a little bit true i don't know when pink elephants on parade happened but those were the vibes i was getting from the cartoon (laughs) aspect of it when it's like the shapes you know that also that moment really scared me when i was young like it really freaked me out it's It's scary. scary she might be a ghost (laughs) um so i do also want to talk about kim novak real quick so i'll put all that stuff about her out there She's really interesting because she doesn't totally do the Hollywood system thing. So she moves out to California. She was born in Chicago. Um, She moves out to California. Oh, people at home, you might know her from the films Picnic, The Man with the Golden Arm, Bell Book and Candle, Pal Joey, The Mirror Cracked. She is still alive today. She was born in 1933. What? Crazy. Yeah, she's still alive. She withdrew from film in her 30s pretty much. She only does film very occasionally every now and then. But she was kind of like, I don't really like the pressure here. I'm really burned out. I don't want to do this anymore. So she became a painter and a visual artist and a poet and left the biz. She sounds so cool. And she has a star on the walk of fame. Um, So the way she gets her start in Hollywood is she's a model for a freezer company. She's Miss Deep Freeze. That's quote unquote. And that's kind of like her start. She becomes an extra in some films. She gets noticed. And so one really cool thing about her that I liked that I learned about her today was during this film, she was actually on strike because she felt like they weren't paying her what she deserved. They weren't paying her enough. So she didn't show up to like her early shooting days. She just didn't go. She was like, no, I'm on strike until you pay me what I want to be paid. And um, they eventually do. They they double her salary almost. It's almost doubled. And it's still like she's making 3000 a week, which isn't like probably what Jimmy Stewart was making. But- I love that. What a badass move. She's only been in two big films before this. To like be 25 years old on an Alfred Hitchcock set and be like, no, you're not paying me enough. I'm not going to show up. That's like gutsy. Part of, I'm surprised they didn't actually replace her for, for doing that. Well, and apparently they were kind of hard on her. Like she felt like she was doing a great job. And I think she is too. And she said yeah. she really resonated, especially with Judy in that scene where Judy is like, I just want you to love me for me. Can't you love me for me? She said, that's how it felt being an actress in Hollywood. 
you go there and everyone's trying to change you constantly. And she's like, can't, can't I just be me? Can't I just keep my name? Can't you just like me for me? So she was like, at that time, especially, I really resonated with those lines and that role. And she gave a lot of her input on what she thought the costume should be. And that's how I found out about the gray suit thing. Cause she was like, I don't like that gray suit. I don't feel like this is my character. And Hitchcock was like, no, this, I'm not, I'm not negotiating on this. Like this is the, I've planned this. This is what we're doing. I'm surprised she wasn't like, well, then why isn't it green? Right. And weirdly enough, she looks just like Tippi Hedren looks in the birds. Like when he makes the birds, the gray suit that she's wearing in this is basically the green suit she's wearing in the birds. And the hair is exactly the same. So you're like, Mm. whoa, is he making? And isn't her name Melanie in that? Creepy. It says by 1966, she was quote unquote emotionally drained. Um, And I think her, she had a lot of like really bad luck with housing, like. She, one of her houses burned down and she lost her other house in a mudslide. So I think she was like, okay, you know what? This isn't wow. for me. Goodbye, everybody. And she had some financial troubles. I think she just got out of Hollywood and was like, I'm good. I'm, we, we've done our stuff here. Goodbye. Um, and their hopes for her when they first signed her was that she would be like the next Rita Hayworth. And she was in Pal Joey with Rita Hayworth. I don't know that she did become that, but I think that she's exceptional in this film. Like, I really like her in this movie. I think she does a great job. Just seeing her turn as Judy, like like we mentioned before, it's just I, it's two different people. Well, yeah, because Madeline can be a little overdramatic sometimes. Like there's literally a moment where she's shaking her head like a dramatic actress in a film, you know, and she's like, I can't, no. You know, she's doing that. It's like this extra layer of like, no, that really is an actress putting on this show for him. Um, so yeah, once she becomes Judy, you see the fully flushed out like perfection of all of it. And the fact that like Hitchcock didn't totally appreciate it at the time and kind of blamed it not being a hit on her a little bit. And then the fact that Alma would say that about her her legs. You're like, oh, Kim Novak's getting blamed for this, but she's crushing it, I think. Yeah, I actually one of my favorite uh, uh, female performances in a Hitchcock movie. So yeah, that was Kim Novak's thing. Uh, Also, I just want to shout out Barbara Belgettis who plays Midge. She's pretty cool too. Um, You might know her people at home. She was on Dallas, the television show. She was in I Remember Mama. She was like the eldest daughter that wants the comb. She, she was in Panic in the Streets. And the thing that I really liked about her was she was the original Maggie, Maggie the Cat in Cat in a Hot Tin Room. What? Um, and that's like three years before this. So three years before this, she's playing someone sexy as fuck on Broadway. And three years later, they're like, you're old, you're ugly, do it. This is what happens when you put glasses on, I tell ya. you. You age 15 years. There you go. One other thing I like just wanted to bring up was um, the two names thing, something that I thought was really cool about it. At first, I was like, why does James Stewart have like 12 names? Why is he John and Scotty? Why? And I mean, he's obviously his name is John Scotty Ferguson. He's supposed to be Scottish. So that's why they call him Scotty, I'm guessing. But I was like, oh, my God, it's brilliant. The reason he has two names is because she has two names. There's all these parallels of duality throughout the film. Oh my God. And what you call each person means something. So like, he's like, my friends call me Scotty. So you can track when people are calling him Scotty or not. And you can track when Midge calls him Johnny-O. And it's like not quite a connection because she's not calling him by his, like what he wants to be called. And then we've got Madeline, who's also Judy and Madeline, who might be Carlotta. So it's like, there's always a duality no matter what. Again, the first part where they first quote unquote met he told her the three names and then she says i prefer john so she calls john but then like next scenes when they start to connect she starts calling him scotty you're like oh they're in love now she used his nickname oh i want to talk about 
Well, I, the nightmare scene we we kind of covered, but the nightmare scene is such an important scene for like filmmaking and in this film. I was actually still kind of impressed with a lot of how it was done, how the background just kept changing on him. And it, for me, for the most part, didn't even look like green screen. I, I don't know. Okay, so there's a nightmare scene in the middle of the film where James Stewart has been deeply affected by Madeline dying and he's having a similar nightmare to the nightmare she described having, which we now know she didn't really have because it was never real. But he's having this nightmare of like, it includes things that we've actually seen in the piece. And it includes him seeing like an open grave, just like she was describing. Um, And it includes him like falling out of the bell tower in her shoes, kind of like he is her falling out of the bell tower, but it's him in this weird position. But then it also goes to this fantastical place where he sees this is when he sees Carlotta again too, right? I don't know how to describe it exactly, but it's like he's haunted by Carlotta. He's haunted by Madeline. And they show us this through cartoon images that are interspersed along with his real life images. Um, It's very fantastical. Understanding the madness he's going through with with all these images, putting himself in her position, uh, still being haunted by Carlotta. you You just know he's not over this and he won't be ever probably also psychoanalysis in the 50s is something that cracks me up too now that we're here because he's clearly going through something and the the psychiatrist is like eh, it's just a guilt complex and you're like oh my god (laughs) well what what was it they said uh uh all it'll take you to get over this vertigo is to just go through another uh traumatic experience very similar like yeah that'll do it yeah but then it does in the end he does get cured of his vertigo because he's in the exact same you know, mental state when he's like, wait, I relived this experience. It worked. So yeah, psychiatry in the past cracks me up. Hitchcock's Spellbound. It's terrible psychiatry in that movie. Oh my God. And it's the same. It's like so outdated. Love that that's part of the plot too. And his fear being used against him. That's a really cool plot device that someone could literally plan a murder around someone else's fear and like know that they would follow through with that. I, I did love when he's talking to Gavin Elster, the husband of Madeline, and he's... He's asking him about all his vulnerabilities. I know they're friends, but it's just like, oh, you can't go up heights? Okay, how long uh, is it severe? Is it, you're like, it just kept going. You're like, these are weird questions to ask someone you're trying to hire as a PI. And then as soon as he says about all these like awful fears he has or whatever, and he's just like, okay, yeah, no, you, you're the only person that can do this job. <laughs> well, and the trust he has in him, the fact that he never looks anything up. Because I, I remember thinking at one point, I was like, well, wouldn't you, the woman that died, wouldn't her picture be somewhere? Like, wouldn't you see that picture in the paper? Or like, wouldn't that come up? And wouldn't you be able to tell that that's not Kim Novak? Right? But that never happens. He just takes everything Gavin says at his word and doesn't go deeper because of that trust there. He knows that Scotty's not going to run up the stairs quickly. Like, because if he just ran up the stairs, everything's ruined. I want to talk about like a little bit more about the controlling stuff. If we're putting the modern lens on it, the thing that is the most glaring to me, besides the fact that like there are no people of color, this is a movie with a lot of white people in it, made by a lot of white people. The controlling, the fact that it's like Jimmy Stewart doing it, that's like watching, I don't know, that's like watching Tom Hanks do something bad. (laughs) You know, it's like Jimmy Stewart, we're still on his side, but he's deeply trying to control her. It's an interesting dichotomy of us being on her side, even though she's a murderer because we're opposed to the controlling, but then still understanding Jimmy Stewart's perspective, like what Ashley had said earlier with like, that's how he's grieving and this is how it's coming out. Probably some of the most disturbing scenes in the movie when he's like, no, no, just put this on. Just knowing what he went through, like you're like, okay, I want to see where this is going because I I get why he's like the way he is now. It's just... The part where he says to her, She's like, I don't want to dye my hair. And he's like, well, what could it matter to you? And I was like, excuse me? 
that matters. It matters to me what I look like. Like, come on. Like, uh, I, I get to choose. I don't know. That cracked me up. Like, what, what do you care about what color your hair is? Like, well, you know, I care. <laughs> it's on my own head. So I care. Uh, and the creepiest moment of all, like, it's like the moment when he turns to the dark side is with the gray suit. She really doesn't want to wear that gray suit. She says, what? I don't like it. And he says, we'll take it. So it's like he completely discludes, that's not a word, disregards her. There were a few red flags that should have popped up for her, but, you know, we don't know her background, as Ashley brought up. She obviously doesn't have the healthiest background. Like, you know, where where he found her was not in a good place. I mean, if she could be coerced into killing somebody's wife, I mean, clearly there's something going on there. Yeah, they're both red flags. They're two red flags who found each other, um, so maybe they're better off together. But I was going to ask, do you think Judy is real? Do you think her that whole backstory she has is Judy is real? Like that those are really her parents and grandparents. Like, what do you guys think? I didn't really question it until you brought it up now, just because I could see somebody trying to move away from their hometown, at least just to get out and then getting wrapped up in a situation like this. You, you probably didn't have a happy life in Kansas. So I'm going to say I believe her. Okay. So we believe she really is Judy. I think she's aching at that point to tell him the truth about who she really is. And I think that's the like, the whole thing is just such a um, tragedy, right? And I think part of the tragedy is that like, they could find happiness. Like they, the two of them could be together, but he's just not willing to accept the reality. He's too wrapped up in his obsession. You know what I mean? To kind of just like, let it be because there is a moment he's gonna leave her but then there's one moment where she says i think it's he's leaving and she goes i am who i say i am honest and there's a moment that they have he like smiles and it like clicks for him about like oh i think i like you for you this person here i like you you know because that's not something madeline would do but he has a moment of actually liking her and it could have been if she was not you know a murderer and if he was not just like completely obsessed and haunted and controlling they could have found happiness in her defense gavin already cracked the neck of his wife before she got up there i mean that's a good defense. point she was already dead but <laughs> she put in a lot of effort that's a lot of like very solid acting yeah. don't you guys like want to know why like i just feel like there's so much more to the story like why would a woman do that and then walk away it almost feels like he's this man has blackmailed her the like it, yeah. it feels like Gavin is the bad guy. Yes. And we don't really get the backstory of how he met Kim, Novak, Judy. And like, it just seems like there's so much more to the story of like how she got wrapped up in this situation and why she feels the need to like stick around and finish this job. When obviously she's kind of such a normal girl. I feel like she has the most honest story. Like, I just feel like there's got to be a, a real reason why somebody from Kansas would end up in this scenario as a trapped woman who's trying to obviously fight her way out. She's not into deception. Like, if she was into deception, she would continue to dye her hair and be, like, kind of, like, turned on by it. But she's obviously grossed out by the whole idea of deceiving. And so I just feel like there's just, there's more. She seems like the one that got trapped. Well, and they do say, there's one point when they say something like, um, Elstern, he gave me some money, but he knows that I can't share the secret because I'm implicated. So it's like, once Elster got the money, he maybe gave her a little, broke up with her and got out. That wasn't what she was expecting. She thought they were in a relationship. She thought she was going to have money. But just the fact that like, oh yeah, since we were in this together, my lips are sealed. So even if it's not like direct blackmail, like 
I'm going to come out with this. It's like she can't say anything because she was involved. She'll go to jail. But I like her as Judy. She has such working class like gumption. It's not like she's entitled. It's not like she's above like working and having a job. And she doesn't want to be like a kept woman. She tells him that right off the bat. Mm -hmm. But her love for him turns her into this. Like she just can't help it with him because her love for him is stronger than her own preservation. I do love the idea of the green being death, though, because I hadn't explored it necessarily that way. I mean, she has that line about living and associating living with green. So I was like, oh, green means like you're haunted. You live forever as a ghost or whatever. It's also a spooky color. It's not like an evergreen. It's like a it's like a ghostly green that, that yeah. he puts to you. Especially from that sign. So green is to this film what oranges are to The Godfather and what sex is to the television show Outlander. It means something bad is coming. Yeah, I think so. I think it's about death. The thing that popped out about it for me in, the, in this reiteration was just realizing how much they are not able to escape it. The, the creepiness of the nun coming out of the darkness. like She looked like death coming out of the darkness. She did. I completely agree. There's something about the inevitability of just death being there for her. No matter what these characters could have tried to do, they couldn't escape this destiny of death. Death already was part of her costume from the first minute that Scotty saw her in that restaurant. She was already covered in green. They were never supposed to meet again, but it's like they couldn't help it. Their destinies are intertwined in this way. And it's interesting that the one thread Gavin didn't think to pull, to fix, why keep her in that town? Like, because you're depriving her of like whatever money or funding, she's stuck in this town and you've left a bunch of evidence behind. Terrible plan, Gavin. My dad used to say that, like, why did he let her stay in this town? If I could just ask the one big question that's on my mind about this uh, this entire mystery. I just want to go back to the beginning for a second. How did he get down after the guy, the cop fell off the building? He's still hanging on the gutter. How did he get down? You make such a good point. Do you remember in Annie, in the movie Annie, when they get that giant, like, trampoline thing? That they have the helicopter, but then at the bottom, they like put that thing that she could fall on that looks like a trampoline. In my head, I was like, they did the trampoline. The firefighters came and they put out that giant trampoline that used to catch people. And that's what I was picturing. Yeah. That's a long time to be hanging off the side of a building, especially when you're now scared of heights. This is what more people should be asking. What happened? We cut away. How does he get down? Because in rear window, he falls. He does. Luckily, it was much less of a drop, but yes. Yeah. The one moment I also wanted to make sure we talked about that was really cool is um, he gets Kim Novak to fully dress like Madeline again, and she comes out of the bathroom, and it's green, and she's a ghost, and she looks just like Madeline, and they start kissing, and the camera does a full turn around them kissing, and when Jimmy Stewart looks up, he's back in the carriage house, like where he was the last time he kissed Madeline, and it's like overwhelming, and they go back to kissing, and it's also cool that it's the camera's on his face, because most times in kissing scenes, it goes on the woman's face. I don't think it would have worked if they were on her, because it was all in his psyche. We need to see what he's feeling, not, not her in that moment, so. And that his plan worked, like he does get back there. He's like Frankenstein trying to bring something back from the dead. And it worked. In that moment, Hitchcock talks about how it's like her hair is half down and it's like she won't take off her clothes in front of him. Have you heard him talk about this? When she comes back from the hair salon with her hair blonde and he's and she's like, is this good enough for you, motherfucker? And he's like, no, you got to put it like in that little like twisty, like vertical vertigo thing. And she's like, 
um okay fine and so she goes in the bathroom and then in that moment when he's waiting for her he literally says in an interview it's like he's like getting his an erection like waiting for her to come out of the bathroom naked somebody said this i'm not sure if hitchcock said this but during that kiss it's like a wide shot and then like a medium shot and it like it actually is a spiral (gasps) this movie's so smart it's so detailed and cool I love that. In a way, though, that, like, you wouldn't know unless you, like, had it on VHS and you could, like, press pause. And it's funny how much detail they put into it, knowing that people couldn't possibly pick up on all these details. It's interesting because it's, like, you know, all these details that I've read about and seen about. I'm like, you know, if, if they're doing these scales that are supposed to be kind of like that hurricane symbol... I mean, are people really supposed to pick up on that? It's like the hurricane thing, but it's also the symbol for hypnosis. You know, that's hypnosis. Like you're being hypnotized into this, like this dream world, this other reality. And the whole Carlotta thing, we never really talked about that, but that's such an interesting plot point that like, I mean, I guess these layers of like people being obsessed with death are very fascinating and getting kind of like lost in not being able to find reality that's like kind of the plot point to begin with, right? Like Madeline is this person who has gotten lost. She's lost her mind because she's so obsessed with death is the original main plot point, right? So I feel like the layer of that, that's really fascinating that kind of like foreshadows what's about to happen to Scotty and being obsessed with the death world and not being able to live in his real world with Midge, being hypnotized, not being a real person, but just like kind of like losing himself in this obsession. And then eventually kind of like losing it so far as to like, I guess, lose her again. I don't know where we end up, but there's so many layers of like people getting lost in death. And even the Carlotta story being its own tragedy, And like someone seeking out that tragedy and then connecting themselves to that tragedy, using that tragedy as like the main plot point for their like focal tragedy. Let's clarify her tragedy. Wasn't it? She was married to someone that she loved. He left her and took her child. And so she was for the rest of her life completely grieving over this lost child. And just getting like so lost in grief that you're just like obsessed with death. Obsessed with death and then maybe like getting life back. Because it's almost like she was still looking for her child. Carlotta was all those years later. Just like Jimmy Stewart is still looking for Madeline. Still finding a way to make that life happen. That is what ghosts do. Things that are dead are only like they're they're still on the earth because they are searching for life, even though they're like encompassed in death. And I feel like that's kind of the movie. It's like this got this like ghost thing to it, which is why San Francisco and the whole fog is a perfect setting because the whole foggy ghost thing, it, it starts with Carlotta, but it just like has like kind of that spiral. It's layers and layers of different people who are who have, who have death surrounding them, and yet they're struggling for life. And they're in a city with all, we're talking about like the ups and downs, the hills, but there's also famous bridges and bridges are supposed to connect, but they're really like covering the water. They're, they're keeping you kind of Ooh. from death. And that's where she commits suicide is at the bridge. We never see them drive across the bridge, do we? They never cross the bridge. Being obsessed and stuck in all that and just knowing they never cross the bridge. And it just makes in San Francisco buildings are upon buildings and there's not much like space on the sidewalk. So it just makes it even tighter for me. And you're just like, 
I can't help but love the details. It just puts extra meaning and thought behind everything. Like it could be a basic story, but they add everything to it by adding these details. It's just the best. You're so right. Um, you guys have made me appreciate this movie so much more. Thank you for this. Because again, I was not the biggest Vertigo fan. And now I think I am. I think you guys have like converted me. Daniel did this for Sunset Boulevard where I was like, oh, I really loved this. I This is a great film. I loved it. Wow. It's a good one for Halloween. Yeah. It's spooky. The colors, I feel like autumnal by the fire. Oh, I love that too. When they're falling in love, there's like a raging fire behind her. And I was like, oh, do we have a metaphor here? Oh, are we on fire for someone? <laughs> um, but this is like a gorgeous looking film. So it's, it's so interesting how we have like the outside is gorgeous. And then the inside, like the obsession, the like grotesque, like all of these ugly things are under the surface, but it looks beautiful on the surface. I mean, we kind of did the modern lens. Well, let's finish up the modern lens, I guess. I mean, the things that I had noted were like, literally I wrote treatment of women, bad. I love Midge. I love that she's bucking expectations, but I hate that she can't get everything she wants. Like, I wish she could have it all. I wish she could have the career and the guy, but you know, that's not this film. She's going to find a guy that appreciates her, though. I just can see that for Midge. My biggest issues ended up being also, like, so I mentioned, obviously, several times the controlling, but the age gap, too. And, like, what we had talked about earlier, how they're, they're like, 25 years apart, Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak in real life. And then um, in the movie, pretending Barbara Belgetti is 50 when she's 36. You know, stuff like that. I think they're trying to pretend that Jimmy Stewart is, like... He's younger, like 40. Evergreen 30-year-old. People people believed him as a romantic lead for his, I feel like his whole career in a way that like he got away with being an older man. Cause they're just like, it's Jimmy. It's, we love him. We know he's a good guy. And that's what makes his turn in this even creepier. Cause you're like, no, Jimmy Stewart, you're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to be controlling. That's not you. Save the day, please. But if Tom Hanks did it, wouldn't you be kind of like, oh, I feel for him. Like I know he's doing wrong, but like, yeah. Oh, he's experiencing loss. But I feel like they probably were supposed to be like, if anybody could get away with it, it's our Jimmy. We're willing to overlook it because of our love for him. So we're at the last part of the show, the double feature portion. Ashley had mentioned earlier, like, I just want to put it out there. What's your favorite Hitchcock? A Alan and I did this like a year ago. We both named ours. I have a weird caveat because I think there's like the best Hitchcock. And then I think there's my favorite Hitchcock. I feel like Rear Window is the best one. I think, because it's just perfect. It's like a perfect movie. But I think my favorite, I get torn. I like the I like the middle, the mid gems. Like I love um, Shadow of a Doubt. I love The Lady Vanishes. I love Strangers on a Train. I love all those like weird in the middle ones. It might be notorious, but I think honestly, the one that I, the one that I'm most entertained by is North by Northwest. I freaking love North by Northwest. And I think that if you're 14 years old and you're like, Vertigo, I just don't get you, then try for North by Northwest because it's suspenseful. It's a little bit spooky. I mean, in a suspenseful way, but it's also just like a great action film. It's just like there's twists and turns constantly. There's romance. It's like, I feel like it's like your most, it's Alfred Hitchcock pop music. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah, and it's like the final pop hit. It's like, this is the last one I'm making like this. It's like the last of that era. It's not era. gory. It's very accessible, and I enjoy it, and I watch it frequently. The music is incredible. I think it's my favorite. North by Northwest is a pretty fantastic uh, popcorn Hitchcock movie. I... Popcorn Hitchcock. It's like there's all of those ones right in there. It's like 
Rear Window, Dial M for Murder, To Catch a Thief, Vertigo's. And, like, there's all these movies right around that time that are, like, these gorgeous, lush Technicolor pictures that are just, like, spies, fun, adventure. And then, oh, just for a double feature sake, I mean, we named, like, some of our favorites. But I actually think this would go very, very well with Sunset Boulevard, but from the other perspective of, like, kind of a woman controlling a man and... I don't know. I think Sunset Boulevard might be fun to watch with this. They're both like epic classics. I would add whatever happened to Baby Jane, just because that one's got every scene and that is uncomfortable. Ashley likes A Stolen Life and I'm like twins. Maybe you could watch an evil twin picture. And then I also wrote down kind of as a joke, but kind of for real, My Fair Lady would be a fun double feature with this (laughs) because of the whole Pygmalion aspect. You could watch this and feel uncomfortable and then watch My Fair Lady oh, yeah. and still feel uncomfortable, but there's music. High Anxiety, Mel Brooks. He parodies all these Hitchcock movies, so that would actually be pretty good. That's a great suggestion. High Anxiety, yeah. Um, or Gigi. When they're they're in that red room with the carpet, that looks just like the movie Gigi, which also came out this year and which won the Academy Award this year. And this would pair well with Gigi, I guess, too. That's a woman changing herself for a man to be loved. That's like every fairy tale I've ever heard. We're glad we changed your mind about this being a good movie. Sarah. Yes. And I will say I could appreciate it before. Like, I, I could always be like, okay, this is a well-crafted film, but I didn't totally, like, enjoy it. And now I enjoy it. So you guys made that happen for me. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. Ashley, Ellen, thank you so much for being here. And uh, we'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me! My guests this week were Ashley Blanchett and Alan Rickert. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe, and maybe even find us on Anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.